0: Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I have a really fascinating conversation with Brian Boyer. Brian is a partner at the architecture and strategic design firm Dash Marshall, where he leads the studio's Civic Futures practice, which is this sort of interesting mix of strategic design and sort of design fictions or uh, even speculative design. Before that, Brian was a founding member of the Helsinki Design Lab, where he worked on a team that used design to help improve public institutions. He studied architecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and at RISD. In our conversation, Brian and I talk about his background and how studying architecture set him up for the type of work he's doing now. And we also talk a lot about strategic design, what it is and what that means and how it works and how it fits into his architecture studio or relates to architecture and the types of work and types of projects that that he's taking on now i know i say this often but this conversation was so interesting to me i admittedly didn't know much about strategic design before we talked and especially didn't know how it was different than say design thinking but just found the way brian talked about design and the way he thinks about design really fascinating and found strategic design to be a mode of work that I personally really want to explore more after this conversation. Before we get into the episode, uh, last week I launched the new Scratching the Surface membership program where for $5 a month or for $50 a year, you can help financially support the podcast and the work that I'm doing around it as well as get new exclusive content through a special members-only monthly newsletter and be the first to hear about new episodes and projects and things like that. Uh, so in case you didn't see that announcement, if you are able and would like to support the work that I'm doing, I would love for you to subscribe. You can do that at scratchingthesurface.fm slash members and read more about uh, the membership program and what that means. So thank you for considering that. but. Right now, here is my conversation with Brian Boyer. I always do a lot of research before I start talking and I had a kind of idea of where I wanted to start. And then I had read an interview last night that you had done a couple years ago for, uh, for Arcanek, where you talked about your career starting at a uh, startup. Uh, and it kind of messed up the flow of what I, how I wanted to start. And so I, I want to talk about that early part of your career, how you started doing what you were doing. So you originally were working kind of in tech or, or online.
1: Yeah, I uh, started college and then dropped out after a year and a half and went to start a company with four colleagues.
2: Oh, wow.
1: And, you know, I was, we were basically building a product which uh, was a kind of browser assistant, which is a phrase that doesn't even make any sense anymore, Um, but a browser assistant for tying services together across the web. So, for instance, in, this was in, 2000 that we started the company and in 99 when we were doing some of the the early development work for it um, You had a wish list on Amazon but uh, you had no way to keep track of things on other e-commerce sites or Mm -hmm. bookmarks across different sites in a way that you know was not tied to the one computer whether you saved those bookmarks on
2: right
1: so it it provided a, a layer on top of the web and we basically built uh, through scraping an API or, or what you would now talk about as an API that allowed you to connect different parts of the web together. So oh, if you book a plane ticket on Expedia and you want to put it on your Yahoo calendar, uh, our system kind of helped you do that. right? And, and,
0: and this was 2000, you said? Yeah. So this is like pre-Web 2.0 even.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay. we were doing really bizarro things with JavaScript uh, using bookmarklets, okay.
2: which wow. is basically JavaScript
1: yeah. and a bookmark, right? And yeah. then using that to pull in a bunch of code on top of whatever website you're on uh, and okay. and then basically launching this little application in the browser. So that came out of, you know, I guess my hobby as a nerdy school child. Okay.
0: <laughs> that, I mean, that's what I was going to ask. I don't want to spend – obviously, don't want to spend too much time talking about, you know, 20 – your career 20 years ago, but w- w- you were interested in programming or tech or, or kind of how how did those things come together?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, to be, maybe give you too much backstory, okay. uh, when, I was, when I was in high school, my stepmom worked at the communications department of the local college, mm. and I uh, begged her to get me in there to use the scanner so that I could scan, if I remember correctly some like street fighter books that I had <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cause I wanted to do something with the images and that led to then having like a, a really uh, minor job in the computer lab, like helping take care of all the Macs in the lab. <laughs> right.
2: And,
1: and that was around the time that HTML, um, and the web were, were really kind of making their consumer debut. So that was in the mid nineties. And, I, I learned HTML as the standard was being written. So, oh wow, you know when when tables were invented, then I learned how to write tables, uh, and when JavaScript came along, then I learned how to write JavaScript. So, um, oh, that's interesting. You know that that for me it was always uh, it was just kind of a, a fun thing to do. And then later at college, uh, I met particularly my friend Ben Brown. Um, he and I. Ended up working on a number of side projects, like little webzines and and things like that, mm. and it became a really generative way to think about how you push technology to do things that it's not used to doing, and that was fun.
0: Yeah. So how so how do you go from that to then what I assume is going back to school uh, or returning to undergrad to study architecture? What how that shift happen?
1: Right. So. I drop out of college, go start the company. We ran that for a little bit less than a year, and then it, it was basically it was too late to start a company at that point because the okay. Web 1.0 bubble had already burst. Oh, and right. yeah, ended up working for a company in Texas, and then moved to Silicon Valley and and worked for a startup there, and grew that or grew with the company from. I think I was number seven, and when I left, it was around 80 or 90 employees. Yeah. And, you know, I at one point looked around and thought, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? <laughs> <laughs> and
0: yeah, I've, I've <laughs> been there. That sounds familiar.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the answer was no. And what I thought about was the parts of the technology work that I enjoyed. And, you know, really, it was always about building tools that allow people to do new things or do things in new ways. Mm -hmm. And when I thought about how else I could do that, architecture seemed like another way to pursue the same interests. And uh, I decided that I was going to go back to school and that architecture was what I would study, and so that's what I did. And then did you want to –
0: this is a a really weird question, but did you think you were going to be designing – Buildings, like is that kind of what you were thinking at that time? Oh, totally. Okay, so then how did that? I I don't mean to kind of rush through all of these things, but how did that change? How did you get to Helsinki? Is is basically where this is going? Um, because sure, you, you did you ever really work as a architect in the traditional sense?
1: Uh, well, it's a really messy question to answer because okay. no, not um after school you know I worked for summers as an architect doing right. architecture things right uh and then after graduation I-, I did not but fast forward to now I have an architecture studio with colleagues and right so right. there's a mix but um I guess to get back to your question about how one goes to architecture school and then doesn't use the degree at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I, I've talked to
0: I mean just to to kind of Clarify a little bit. I think uh, I I've talked to a lot of architects on the podcast. I have a lot of friends who studied architecture and then go on to do things that are not considered architecture, or to yeah. work in kind of tangentially related fields. And I'm always interested in what what you learn in architecture school and how that sets you up to do all of these things that are not building buildings. You know, right? You know what I mean?
1: Well, you know, actually, maybe an interesting connection here is that when I was a youngster working in the tech community. Like all my friends were ten plus years older, right. And a number of them, particularly the ones doing the design side of building the web, had studied architecture or were architects. Yeah And you know, I remember like thinking, wow, these guys, these guys and gals are really smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it you know it proves your point that architecture as a as a field of study, you know, produces people who go out and do many, many other things. And actually, you know, it's an interesting, or I think it's an important topic to come back to mm-hmm. at some point in the discussion, because I think as the design disciplines excluding architecture have kind of grown and expanded, you know, graphic design, product mm-hmm. design, interaction design have, have really opened up in a lot of ways. Um, and architecture in the same time span really hasn't.
2: Mm,
1: but at the same time I think that just the kind of basics of architecture are very fertile for addressing the kinds of systemic or larger scale challenges that we yeah. see now graphics interaction and product designers being interested in. Yeah. Um but oh. to answer your question about Helsinki uh you know there's kind of there's like the the rational story and the irrational story. <laughs> okay. So and I think they're both important. Okay. Uh, the or the, let's say there's like the the thinking process story, and there's the unconscious story. Okay, I love it. And and the thought process was, you know, I graduated um, in two thousand, spring of two thousand eight, okay. and I moved with the the person that I was dating at that point, who had a job uh, at a very fancy architecture firm in Switzerland, and. Uh, you know, the idea was that I'd I'd move there and I'd get a job as well. And I taught for the summer and did a fellowship. And then by the time it was uh, September or so, and I was putting together the portfolio and, and really trying to shop around for jobs, Lehman brothers collapsed. And then the entire (laughs) global economy collapsed. And that means that no architecture studio, as far as I could tell, anywhere on the planet was hiring. Yeah. And, at the same time, uh, my professor, Marco Steinberg, uh, who was actually my first professor in grad school, and then I had done work with him after that, uh, you know, he had actually, before graduation, he had said, ah, I'm, I'm going to go to Helsinki and, and do some work that I think you'd be really good at. Uh, you should think about coming with me. And I said, no, I'm going to go be a famous architect, obviously. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> and when I didn't have any options in in architecture, then you know I, I kind of, um, of course, confidently, but actually sheepishly called Marco and said, "Hey, <laughs> maybe maybe I will come uh, to Helsinki yeah. and, and do some consulting work for you. You know, just while I I let the economy come back."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and and I did that for a few months, and then that turned into, "Hey, this is really interesting." And in fact, this is much more interesting than going to work for some big architecture firm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's the kind of conscious story or conscious thought process that that I went through. Right. But when I think about it, in grad school, the projects that I worked on were not like the architecture uh, type of projects. Right. And the internships that I sought were a mix of architecture and non-architecture stuff like IDEO. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think even if I had gone into an architecture studio, it wouldn't have been very long that I would stay there.
0: Okay. my guess. Yeah. I mean, that that's that makes a lot of sense now, The kind of the way you describe that. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, and you started touching on it a little bit, so I kind of want to pull it out a little more, is um, at the design lab, you, your job, I I don't know how to phrase this, but you you use the term strategic design as kind of what you were doing. And so I have two questions around that. And the first one is, I I would love for you to kind of define or describe what strategic design is. And then I think that's a, a potentially good way to bring in what you were mentioning earlier about how these other design disciplines are starting to expand. And if there were things from your architecture education that played into working as a quote-unquote strategic designer?
1: Uh, so let's start with the hardest one. <laughs> yeah, sorry, defining... sorry, I
0: gave you two big questions right back to back.
1: So strategic design uh, is a, a term, you know, Marco used to always say it's both of the words are meaningless at this point. <laughs> Strategy is so abused that yeah, it yeah. means basically anything. And same with design. Design right. could be a noun, a verb, you know, many, many different, yeah. uh, many different meanings. And what what we developed in Helsinki and, and the way that I think about it now is that strategic design is about using the skills that designers have uniquely cultivated for a very long time. And I mean that designers as a, uh, a cohort. a <laughs> in questions of business, politics, the economy, kind of larger systemic and therefore strategic questions about everyday life. Mm -hmm. And that means working upstream earlier than designers usually get invited into the process. And so in that realm, you know, in Helsinki we talked about it as – the designer bringing the skills of integration, visualization, and stewardship. So integration okay. being the ability to pull a bunch of stuff together and synthesize it into a thing. Right. Visualization being, you know, the ability to draw, to sketch, to use diagrams, to make models, prototypes, etc., as a way to externalize or produce a, a kind of. Um, you know, I think of it as producing an object that people can orient their thoughts towards or around, as opposed to just communicating from my brain to your brain and, and leaving lots of opportunity for things to be right. um, not necessarily misunderstood, but just understood differently be- between the, the two noggins. Mm-hmm. And then stewardship is is really this notion of um, iterating through a process and understanding that even though you make some key decisions or maybe you have, um, you know, you have a direction early on that when you actually start to implement that direction, that things don't always work out and that you have to adjust. And so it's the idea of maintaining kind of intelligence and presence across a process, which is in distinction to, and this is a gross generalization, a a more industrial process where the intelligence tends to be at the beginning Um, and the execution is at the end. Okay. So like the, um, in the, what we call the blue book, uh, recipes for systemic change that we wrote in Helsinki, uh, yeah. there's a diagram that shows, uh, basically the idea of consultants and contractors being kind of what, uh, work has been boiled down to. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're a company, you call in consultants to tell you what to do and then you, you <laughs> usher them out of the room and then you call in contractors and you say, okay, now do it. Right. And what happens in the gap between those two different uh, you know, labor pools, basically, is a high potential for the draining of intelligence or the deeper understanding about the motivations That's of the work that we're doing. Yeah. And so what, what we were observing with the strategic design work is that, you know, think about politics. Um, if we imagine, and this is tough today, but if we imagine for a moment that Politicians have the best interests in mind, uh, and that yeah. they go into a room and they make some decisions. Right. And then they pass those decisions on to the various agencies and departments who are going to enact those decisions. There's a gap in the understanding between why the decisions were made and how the fine grained details of their enactment should be carried out. Right. And that's the kind of thing that would drive a designer crazy because that's like, you know, designing your book and sending it to the printer and never going for press check. Right. Right. And never caring about what kind of paper stock it's on and, you know, all those things that are, they are details and they don't matter from a big picture perspective, but they do matter from how the work is received and experienced. And so, you know, perhaps naively what we are trying to do is, is bring this ability of designers to think about the, the various parts of a problem Mm-hmm. To use unique tools uh, in that thinking process, and to to work across the duration of the process into contexts where designers are not usually involved, like business and politics, etc.
0: Right. Does that? I th- this might be a a really stupid question, but I, I'm thinking you know you had mentioned when you were in school being interested in companies like IDEO, and I'm curious how how strategic design is different than kind of the IDEO branded design thinking?
1: Well, the really simple version is I don't think thinking is enough. Okay. So, okay. I like that. If you or I, I, I will say in my own experience, having the opportunity to speak to people who are running government ministries or, uh, you know, department of city hall or even running city hall itself. When you speak to, executives on top of these large organizations that we can all point to and say, we know that there are problems in this organization, and it's not performing the way that we as citizens would like it to. Mm -hmm. The people at the top very often are aware of the challenges. They might not be aware of them in their full depth, or they might have a different opinion about it, but they understand the complexity of the organizations that they're working on uh, very often. Right. And you know, they might need some help with ideas about what to do, but it's also a challenge of implementing those ideas. And mm. in an organization, that means it's a social challenge because organizations are people. Right. So, the design thinking, um, if if I'm being really simplistic, <laughs> I think that design thinking has been built essentially as uh, a kind of creativity. Uh, additive right. for organizations. And, you know, like my girlfriend, my partner is a lawyer. She's okay. one of the most creative people I know. Right. 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 So I don't think that creativity necessarily is the challenge. I don't even think that empathy necessarily is the challenge. Those might be parts of it. But yeah. I, I think the bigger issue is that the institutions that we have, now in the 21st century were designed at some point in the past and they were fit for service at that point but mm-hmm. they're not anymore because the context has changed so we can't just think about rewiring those institutions we have to think about it and also figure out a way to to implement that rewiring or or yeah
2: know,
1: to uh, marco loves to use the phrase that uh you have to change the engine while the jet is flying right
0: <laughs> right so what is your, you know, whether it's at Helsinki or at Dash Marshall where you are now, I, I'm curious kind of what, uh, I hate, I really hate asking this question, but um, what's the deliverable, I, I hate using that word, you know, what's the... I love this question. Okay, like what's the end result then, I guess, if it's not, if it is more than thinking, what's kind of the thing that you are giving or what are clients hiring you to get,
1: yep. So it it depends on the situation. Helsinki was unique because we were a part of the government. Right. So the Finnish Innovation Fund, which was kind of the host entity uh, of Helsinki Design Lab, where you know I was an employee of the Finnish Innovation Fund. Oh, okay. Uh, we were part of the government. We had our own pool of funds that were separate from, you know, kindergartens and fire stations and all the other stuff in government. So it wasn't like a a zero sum battle for money. Um, And that meant we could go to the Ministry of Education and say, hey, we want to work with you on one of your thorniest challenges. So you pick the challenge, we'll bring the approach and some resources and we'll work on it together. And in that context, you can do a lot <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> because, um, because you have the liberty to say, you know what? What we need right now is to be a neutral um, kind of a neutral actor who can convene a diverse set of stakeholders that wouldn't usually be together to to give the ministry input on their challenge from a new perspective.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or it could be we're going to work with you to develop a pilot program. Or it could be okay. we're going to embed somebody, a designer, inside one of your teams for a year, and help you understand what that could mean for your organization writ large. So, okay. you know, I think in in the best case scenario when we're talking about strategic design, the outputs uh, are very diverse from changing the organizational structure to thinking about what's missing from that organization as a whole Mm -hmm. to enacting or developing new processes internally. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, equally what I've been concerned with lately is this question of ultimately all of the projects that I've done as a strategic designer at some point come back to the question of culture change. Oh, interesting. Right, so everybody says it's inevitable, whatever project it is. Like I just did a project uh, with one of my HDL colleagues who now teaches at RISD. Okay. And we were doing a studio on narco-trafficking in the US.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: So very different from the work <laughs> that I was doing yeah. anywhere else. And sure enough, as part of that discussion, you know, amongst many other things that came up, culture change was one of the issues. How do we change the culture to, uh, in this case, help people feel like they have some kind of hope, right? That they have some kind of future. So, if we talk about culture change, whether it's writ large in a society like the United States or it's within one organization, uh, I feel that the way we change culture is with culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I love that. So, in that situation, actually, the the kind of traditional skills of the designer become really important again. So, things like what do we surround ourselves with? What do we look right. at every day? Right. Um, how do we interact with each other as humans? Like, what are the artifacts? Uh, what are the routines and what are the rituals that are part of our life? Right. And designers. Have been obsessing about and nudging forward those things for their entire existence. So, you know, when you asked about deliverables, I gave you a list of kind of very highfalutin (laughs) things uh, that frankly are incredibly difficult to even have the opportunity to try to implement, let alone be successful implementing. Right. And most of the good work that's done in that realm of the first half of my answer is done by people who are already inside government, mm. like we were in Helsinki or Mind Lab is in uh, Denmark or Taxi is in Australia or uh, the, it's not quite in government, but close, the Mars Discovery Center is in Toronto. Mm. You know, th- there's a lot of organizations now around the world that are using design from inside government, not as consultants. And that's my kind of biggest, um, or I I believe that that position of working as an insider is really the only way to make significant change. Yeah. So, but then on the the opposite end, this question of how do you make evident a culture of change is... I think something that's often overlooked because it seems trivial. So for one of our projects, we created t-shirts for things like street trees and potlucks and sidewalks and street lights because the foundation that was driving that project was interested in people, um, kind of looking at public assets in a new light. I was like, well, you know, I can talk to people all day long about how great the library is, but it's, quite a high cognitive load required to engage in something like that a discussion about the benefits of the library in a democratic society. Yeah. And if if you had to do the same thing to celebrate your favorite band, you probably wouldn't do it so often. <laughs> right. So we've been trying to like flip these questions to say okay if the outcomes yeah. are things that are basically at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that take you know, the, the most refined, uh, or rarefied, um, kind of concentration and also everything else below that on the pyramid. Uh, maybe we can find ways to like take baby steps towards the discussions or the conversations that we're trying to have by making it really easy for people to get excited about, or even to think about things in a new way. And so t-shirts and postcards and stickers and, you know, all that stuff, um, which earlier in my career I didn't really pay much attention to now I I feel more of a, a kinship with
0: yeah so you know you now run a architecture studio that does at least I think correct me if I'm wrong that does both kind of traditional architecture but then also this other type of work um how do those do, does kind of being in a in a studio like that, does that change how you think about your job? Because you're not always embedded in, in the company like that. And then how does the studio think about these two sides? Or are they even two sides? Or are they kind of one one type of practice now?
1: Yeah, so it's really hard to do the kind of design work that I was describing yeah. uh, as a consultant. And what we've been doing is taking very few projects. Okay. And so the projects that we take tend to be longer term engagements. Um, you know, instead of maybe a few months, we, we try to take projects that are more like a year Mm. because I think that gives us more time to develop a relationship with the people that we're working with, um, to really wrap our minds around what's going on and, and, to produce something that we think has at least a, a small chance of having an impact. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's something that we're still figuring out is, (laughs) you know, actually going back to the question of deliverable is what's the right deliverable for a consulting studio like ours. Yeah. Uh, so we've been experimenting with things like film and yeah, I wanted to ask you about that actually, you know, different, just different types of, um, of media, basically Mm -hmm. focusing more on media. And it, it, I don't know, when I came back to the States, I thought, okay, what am I going to do? And one of the downsides of having worked at a very singular organization Mm -hmm. is that there's nothing else like it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, when I I looked around, I was like, oh, it's not even like there's a, a thing that's like, Citra like the Finnish Innovation Fund but just not quite as good or you know maybe a little bit more political or something there's just nothing like it so um, so I I decided to focus it more on the private practice and and to fold the strategic work into the architecture studio uh, with my two colleagues my two partners and you know I I will say it's a very different type of work but I, I think What's been useful is having to think through this question of how you practice or what a strategic design practice looks like in a different mode, mm-hmm. because I think uh, it's a field or it's a corner of the design field writ large that you know is still developing certainly and needs to develop still,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and yeah. therefore you know trying it out in a new context is it's a big experiment and maybe in a few years I'll find out that it just isn't worth it and and I'll do something else or, you know, we'll shift the practice somehow. So we're treating it like an experiment.
0: Yeah. I want to, you know, you mentioned video and kind of treating this as an experiment. I wanted to ask you, I I have two thoughts. I wanted to ask you about uh, this kind of, I don't, I don't know the initiative or, or kind of way of working that you're calling civic futures that, you, you describe on the site, uh, I love this, as I'm reading it from the site right now, a mashup of bleakerian design fiction and strategic design with a little bit of Adam Curtis-style connection-hungry narrative stylings mixed in. First of all, I love everything about that sentence. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to ask you about that and what that means to you. But I also want to connect it back to something you mentioned earlier about, about these design fields kind of expanding and architecture maybe not as much. And that as someone, as a graphic designer who has never studied architecture, but has always had a big interest in architecture, I've always loved how it seemed like architects, more so than graphic designers, were comfortable working in that kind of mode, in the speculative mode, in something that's a little more design fiction, uh, that's a little more maybe experimental, that's kind of maybe not gonna be a building or not something built. Um, and it it actually, this project feels like it very much follows in that tradition. Uh, and so I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that. I don't know if that was really a question, but, um, the way you're thinking about that and its relationship to, to maybe architecture, architecture, history.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you're right. Architects traditionally have been very speculative. Yeah. Uh, I think at least in part, for a very basic reason, which is the vast majority of architects can't build work on their own. Right, right. Compared to, you know, graphic design, for instance, where if you want to, you can publish a book on your own. Right. Uh, Build a website, certainly you can do that. So, um, of course, there are some things maybe that are beyond your reach, but the vast majority of what you um, what the discipline includes are things that are, are fairly accomplishable Mm -hmm. and that's just not the case for architecture. Uh, so people have been forced to be speculative, particularly people who are, um, you know, in a context where they're, uh, you know, they have a diminished role in society. Like there's a, a pair of, um, Russian architects, the, uh, Brodsky brothers—I can't remember their first names—who, um, you know, behind the Iron Curtain, produced these really, really beautiful um, architectural narratives. Okay. And that's because they didn't have any way to participate in the production of architecture in their society, and or, let alone the democratic process that didn't exist in their society. <laughs> right. And so they use their skills as a way to to kind of do both of those at the same time. Um, or if you look at different periods of of economic, uh, <laughs> let's use the economics phrase, different periods of economic softness, mm. <laughs> <laughs> like the 80s after yeah. the oil crisis yeah. here in the US, right? That's when you see the explosion of uh, deconstructivist architecture, which was largely on paper mm-hmm. in the beginning. And... Personally, I think at least part of that is the fact that there just there weren't people out there commissioning buildings like there had been previously, and right. so the creative energy, the probably the surplus of creative energy, if we're being honest, um, had to find some way to be expressed, and it was expressed on paper. And I, I think what's useful about that is the the rigor that it introduces of being you know, speculative or projective about a future. Right. I would say that oftentimes architecture or at least the critical kind of academic side of architecture tends to be speculative in a dystopian (laughs) manner. Yeah. Yeah. And what we've been trying to do with our civic futures work is to say, like, we want to hold constant this idea of thinking about the future and we want to hold constant this idea of imagining not just the, the nouns of the future, the buildings or the pieces of technology or whatever it is, mm-hmm. but also the verbs that are enabled by those nouns, the new behaviors mm-hmm. or the new experiences. But uh, we want to, as a kind of third part of it, we want to orient in a way that is definitely not dystopian, and right. definitely not utopian. So we want to use it oh, as a way to th- think critically about a future that might not feel plausible but mm-hmm. feels possible. And you know what I found is we could walk into a room with all the charts and graphs uh, and you know kind of rational justification for a really great idea, uh, but if people don't feel it, right, it's hard to get them motivated. And what we've been experimenting with the civic futures work is kind of going far in the opposite direction and saying, great, we'll use the kind of tools of rational analysis uh, in our studio as a way of developing ideas. But when it comes to expressing the ideas, we'll express them as much as possible as glimpses of a future state and to make those as realistic as possible. So we're trying to or it's actually changing now because we just did a project with Kelly Anderson, who's a great graphic designer oh, and, yeah. Maker yeah, yeah. and maker. Um, so we did a project with her doing illustrations that were more kind of comics um, or illustrative, I suppose. <laughs> okay. And prior to that, we had really been insistent on saying we're only going to show things that are as photorealistic as we can make them because when you see something that's photorealistic but it doesn't look like your city, Mm-hmm. what we noticed uh, in the few audiences that we were lucky to have is that people are like, whoa, <laughs> they kind of like perk up quicker than if we show them a illustration right. of a future. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: I'm, I'm curious about the role of writing in your work. You've, you've kind of kept up a, uh, you've been kind of blogging for years. You are prolific on medium. You, you write these great case studies about, about your projects. Um, it seems like writing is very central to the actual development of these projects also. And so I'm just kind of curious how just the practice of writing fits into what you do both personally and professionally really. And, and how that kind of shapes the way you think about design.
1: Ooh, that's a good question. (laughs) Um, I mean, in part it's because I don't really know what I'm thinking until I try to write it Yeah, Yeah. or I have a, you know, the luxury of a, a long conversation like this where we have an hour to really talk through things.
2: Yeah.
1: So for me, it's a it's a selfish in a way, the the writing, because it, it helps me understand kind of where my brain is. Mm-hmm. Um but the other part of it, and this is something that I picked up I think from the technology community, where in the tech world, people are much more open uh, with their process mm-hmm. than in the design world. Yeah. And so people, you know, if you solve a hard problem, uh, not the, actually this is interesting, because in the tech world, you know, if you're, I don't know, let's say you're building Facebook, Yeah. the hardest parts of what you're doing are about the algorithm that powers everything, that magical algorithm. <laughs> right. So you mm-hmm. definitely do not write up how you solve that hardest problem, right? Right. That's your secret sauce and you don't wanna tell anyone. But you do write up and share every other hard problem that you solve, right. just not the absolute hardest. Right. And what that does is create opportunities for people who are new to the field or new to the work to kind of use those as, as uh, grappling points or stepping stones to kind of climb their way up to new levels of understanding and also to accelerate the work of the entire field. So you have, you know, Facebook and Google and all sorts of other companies contributing, not just to open source projects, but then also writing very detailed accounts of how they solve those problems. And that's something that, uh, you know, certainly we were involved in or I was involved in when I was part of that community. And, I've just never really understood why designers are so cagey
2: yeah. about
1: what they do. And so with particularly the, when we started the work in Helsinki recognizing that it was a new way or a, let's say a slightly different way of thinking about the role of designers and even the day-to-day tasks of designers, you know, like your question about deliverables is, mm-hmm. is really appropriate because, or it's a really valid question because like, what the hell are you actually doing <laughs> that we wanted to to bring to life as much as possible, this, this alternative path for designers. Yeah. Because if we couldn't do that, then there's, there's really no future path for it. Right. Cause there are very few schools that are right. teaching the kind of design work that we were talking about. Uh, so we, we felt like at the time, we felt like part of the strategy there was to change government and change design. Yeah. And on the changing design side of things, writing about the, the process of design was the primary tool that we developed.
0: Yeah. I love that. And that at, that leads in great to what my next question is. And this is a question that I ask everybody. Uh, you know, This podcast really started uh, as a kind of inquiry into design criticism and how we talk about design, specifically graphic design, because I felt like so much of the – as you kind of touched on a little bit, so much of the writing about graphic design was either um, like – here's how to do this thing in Photoshop or something. Or it's kind of the quick critique of big Fortune 500 company has a new logo. Let's let's see if it's better than the other one. And I, right. felt, I felt like there was a deeper way we could talk about graphic design. Uh, and so I'm kind of interested in, from your perspective, what are the issues or the topics that designers should or could be writing about or talking about, kind of right now, 2018, what are the things that kind of deserve a, a critical gaze?
1: Oh, man. <laughs> I'm going to think about this one for a minute. I, I should have warned I mean, you about this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I I had intended to listen to some episodes of, of your podcast, and then I would have known what questions <laughs> you're going to ask. And unfortunately, I didn't have time. <laughs> um, no, that's okay. But, uh, you know, I, I think... Right now, designers and other people called humans <laughs> are freaked out. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people are are worried about what's going on, particularly in this country mm-hmm. uh, with our politics, but, you know, equally in pretty much every other country uh, about the climate and all sorts of other serious issues. So... I have a hard time kind of navigating this because I feel like, on the one hand, um, i I genuinely do think that designers have a unique role to play in particularly in telling the story of how we make decisions about things that are very hard, quantitative you can calculate them Mm -hmm. and things that are very soft and fuzzy, like emotions and feelings that you absolutely cannot quantify, but bringing both of those together to make singular decisions. Mm. Like that I think is the special sauce of designers. And it's something that we as a community have not articulated very well because we get caught up in things like creativity being what we do. But actually it's this ability to, 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 make decisions about hard and soft together at the same time, that makes us really unique. So while on the one hand, I, I think there's a role for that, you know, as we described or discussed in the, the strategic design stuff, there's a role for that in like go into government, go into business, like have, have an important um, position. And at the same time, I think a lot of the issues that are producing the sorts of general anxiety that, that I pick up when I talk to friends um, those aren't designer issues. Those are just person issues or human issues.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
1: so, you know, from a from a design perspective, um, you know, I don't know that designers need to be obsessed about uh, climate change. I think humans need to be obsessed about climate change. Yeah. And people who live in societies need to be obsessed about climate change. From a design perspective, the things that I feel are still most important are really about changing the relationship of design practice uh, Mm. to its clients (laughs) or to the business world writ large, because I'm pretty tired of seeing designers or design studios uh, overworked, underpaid, unappreciated, and nobody's going to change that for us. So we have to do it ourselves. And that means... You know, being much more serious about business issues, being much more serious about how we negotiate contracts, and you know, all that little nitty-gritty stuff. Yeah. So like a self-help manual for uh, graphic designers to negotiate better contracts. Like that's going to do a little bit, but that's not enough. And right. I don't know how we how we make progress on this, but I certainly see in the field of architecture, like. There's just not enough focus on it.
0: My last question, this is another one that I ask everybody, is I'm kind of curious who are the um, – I'm asking. I'm going to ask you this in two ways. Who are the, the kind of writers or the books that have really influenced how you think about all of these things? And then secondly or alternatively, if it's uh, a better answer or if it's a diff- different answer, um, are there books or is there a reading list that you would recommend to – designers who are interested in this kind of mode of
1: practice that you're talking about? Ah, uh, Books. Um, yeah. I mean, there are lots <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I would have to actually, we, we wrote a bibliography or not a bibliography. We wrote a reading list in oh. the back of recipes for systemic change. Uh, and that's still probably the, the starting point that I would, Okay. Uh, people towards, and yep. I'd have to crack it open to remember what's on that list. <laughs> yeah. We can direct um, people to that to that book, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, in terms of in terms of other things that are kind of more on the top of mind, um, you know, I I've been trying to sort of bridge the gap between. The sort of humanist, anthropological, sociological approach of uh, towards design mm-hmm. from people like Richard Sennett, yeah, whose book Together is awesome.
0: Oh, I and haven't read that one yet.
1: It's yeah, it's a few years old, but really good. Um, you know, all about different forms of collaboration.
2: Yeah.
1: But then the like through the cracks, you see little ideas about. Um, what design is or could be in a book like that, and it's it's not very innovative. Hmm. And so, you know, I've been really kind of thinking about people like Sennett or Bruno Latour, yeah. who's uh, making things public, is still a touchstone for me. It's quite an old exhibition catalog at this point, but um, yeah. his introductory essay in that book is awesome. So, how do you connect these kind of perspectives on humans? in their environments or in the world and really thinking very carefully about those, those humans and their interactions, but at the same time, not giving up on the possibility to invent completely different, completely new ways to be human. Right. Uh, somehow that's, that's the space that, that my brain has been in. So I've been reading science fiction and, um, I love that economics history and (laughs) really random.
0: That's, that's great. That is so interesting. And I think is actually a really nice way to, to to wrap this up. Brian, thank you so much. This was so fun and interesting to me. I'm a big fan of of you and your work and the way that you think about these things. And it was so great to kind of pick your brain about all of these things. I I, I found it so interesting. So thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Jared. I'm honored to be on the podcast, and it was a really great conversation. Like I said, this is the only way I can figure out what I think. So I appreciate the opportunity of having your help on that.
0: Yeah, of course. If I can always just give people a place to kind of sort out things, I feel like I've done my job awesome. This episode was recorded on February 20th, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks
2: for listening.